Heavenly Father, we bow our heads in prayer, recognizing you are amongst us by the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us. As Christ promised, with two or more gathered, he would be here, Father, yet we see around us that he is not physically present, though by his Spirit he is. And we look forward to the day that his Spirit in us would be united with a meeting that is face-to-face, so that we would know him in total and in full, not just by the Spirit, but also in our bodies as we stand before him. That day is coming, Father, as you promised, and it will come when we don't expect it. So we ask, Father, that what we study today in the book of Hebrews, out of the examples of men and women of faith, would help prepare us for that day, for that day to come, so that we might stand ready, having lived a life that pleases you, that we would not be caught off guard as the parables warn us, and that we instead, Father, would have ears to hear and would be ready and waiting for our groom to come and claim us. Let us be like the servant who receives the, the master's pleasure when he comes to see what we are doing. Father, I also pray that what we hear now would inspire us in the days we have left on this earth to serve as a greater testimony and faith of who you are and what you have done for us and the promises you've given us, and that we would uh, be mindful of the fact that as we live, we communicate what we believe, whether for better or worse. So let us, Father, always have that on our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, let's continue our walk or our tour through the Hall of Faith, as we've called chapter 11, as many have called it. And the tour guide for this trip is the writer of Hebrews. And his focus is on helping us draw lessons of application from the examples of these Old Testament saints, men and women who allowed their faith to inform their choices and their decisions in life. And in every case that we will look at in this chapter, we're going to find a very similar pattern. These are people, men and women, who lived according to a hope in God's promises concerning future events. And their hope caused them to live in ways that were vastly different than the way the world was living around them. They stood out in dramatic fashion. They adopted their contrary lives as a testimony to the world concerning what they believed. Just like you and I, as I mentioned in a previous example, we, we avoid stepping off the top of tall buildings because we believe in the law of gravity. And we don't have to test it in that way in order to know that it's true. Well, by analogy, these men and women lived under certain convictions concerning things that they knew to be true but were yet to be seen. And in that we find the definition of faith. Now we ended last week in the middle of a section in which the writer is drawing examples from the lives of the patriarchs of Israel, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so far we've looked at Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And we learned last week that this couple was able to bear children long after the natural time for childbirth had ended because, the writer says, they trusted in the promise of God to bring a child from their womb. And in Abraham's case, his faith was evidenced by moments. You remember we said he was a guy that... By his life, he shows us moments of faith, things that few of us could imagine doing. He did in the instant he was asked, including a decision that began the whole process, the one in which he left his entire life behind to start something new, merely on the basis of a promise from God that there would be something better waiting for him in the end. His wife, she took a different route to faith, as we saw, but she demonstrated it in the end, nonetheless, at first, she scoffed at the notion that she would one day produce a child in her old body. But then in time, the Lord convinced her that 
He was trustworthy and her heart turned to his word. And in faith, the writer says, she conceived, having considered him faithful, who is promised. And now the writer is going to summarize the story of Abraham and Sarah and how it turns out. And there is something of a surprise outcome, surprise at least from the world's point of view. Look at verses 13 through 16. The writer says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The writer begins there by saying all these died in faith. Now, all these in this context must refer to Abraham and Sarah. But in reality, what he's about to teach applies equally to everyone who is in this chapter. Everyone in the hall of faith could be said to think in the way that he is describing. In this case, Abraham and Sarah died without having received the promises. Now, what he's referring to is the promise of land, of having received the inheritance in the land, and of having seen the world filled with all of these innumerable descendants that they would expect to have. They died before any of that came to pass. They received only a very small measure of God's promises in their lifetimes. They received just their son, Isaac, and they were given a life of sojourning, of wandering in a land that was not theirs, That's the least of what the promises offered them. Just a taste, if you will. Just a tip of an iceberg of God's blessing that was given to them. They never received everything else God told them. Not even close. The promises of God, if you remember, included a land mass, a land area that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea into present-day Iraq and from Damascus, Syria, down to the Brook of Egypt. That's a span of geography that Israel has never had. Never mind in the time of Abraham and Sarah. And yet, that's what God said they would get for having left Ur and having trusted him and traveled to Canaan. Now, at the end of verse 13, the writer confirms that they, Abraham and Sarah, welcome these promises, and then notice what he says, from a distance. And what he means by a distance is not a distance in space, but a distance in time. From a distance of time, they trusted that these things would be brought about. All of God's promises would come about for their sake. But they also knew that the fulfillment of these things would not happen before they died. So think about this for a minute. Abraham and Sarah lived long enough to see the beginning of these promises fulfilled, but they died without having seen those promises completed. They saw them only from a distance in time. Now, what does it say about God's faithfulness? What does it say that God promised something that they did not receive in their earthly lifetimes? Are we saying that God failed to deliver? The key to answering that question is to be clear on what he promised. Let's understand what he said he was going to do first. Did God promise that Abraham would receive all of these things in his first earthly lifetime? Or did he have a different timeline in mind? Well, the writer says that Abraham and Sarah lived as strangers, as exiles on the earth, precisely because they understood that God's promise of land and a promise to have a world filled with descendants would not be fulfilled in their earthly lifetimes. They knew that they knew it so well that they had no interest in the land that they occupied. 
They had no expectation they would receive it in their earthly lifetimes. They then took up a lifestyle of wandering, nomadic lifestyle, which was their evidence that I don't think this is mine. That can only mean one thing. They expected to receive the things of God in another lifetime, in a resurrected life. They knew that so well, they lived in this lifetime in a certain style to communicate their faith in resurrection. And the writer points this out. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says their willingness to remain wanderers in a land that wasn't their own was proof that they knew that their reward could not be found on earth during their lifetime. Because he says, look, if there had been some part of the earth, in other words, he says some country, that was to be their inheritance during their lifetime, then they would have simply journeyed there and claimed it. The fact that they never went looking for anything on earth as their own, and they were content to remain wanderers up till the day they died, is itself proof, the writer says, that they knew that their inheritance could not be found in their earthly lifetimes. Instead, he says, they were waiting for a better country, one that God had promised, one that descends from heaven in a future day. In other words, the kingdom of the Messiah, which will only be inaugurated at the coming of the Lord. That's what it means when it says the descending of the city. There is this notion, I know, that it's referencing the heavenly Jerusalem that descends in the new heavens and new earth. That's included in this mindset. I'm not saying it's not there. But there's an earlier moment in God's timeline in which the promises of Abraham are fulfilled. And that is at the coming of the Messiah and the setting up of a kingdom on earth in which he reigns. It's in that world that everything that has been promised will come to pass for Abraham and his descendants. And it's said to come from heaven in the sense that Christ himself comes back in his return. He brings that kingdom. He brings about its inauguration. So, friends, what we're learning is Abraham and Sarah were expecting to be resurrected. They were expecting new bodies to live in a heavenly kingdom. And in that future day and in that future place, then they knew they would receive the inheritance they were promised, which tells us, friends, they knew they had to die first. They knew and understood that they had to wait for a kingdom. They saw it from a distance. In other words, they saw it in a future day. They recognized that it would require a new physical body before the kingdom arrives. This is what Daniel 12 also teaches, that before the kingdom is stood up, all the saints will be brought back from the grave and given new bodies. But only then would they receive the promises. This is such an interesting concept, isn't it? It's one we understand, I'm certain, I'm sure most of us do, obviously. But think about it from the perspective of Abraham and Sarah. They literally adopted a lifestyle that was foreign to them simply because they were convinced that there was no reason to start looking for something that couldn't come until they had died, been resurrected, and brought into the kingdom. Now, Jesus, in a very interesting moment in the Gospels, he refers to their reality, to this concept, this idea that I know I have to die and be resurrected before I will receive what God has for me. He refers to this as evidence of God's faithfulness during the exchange on the last week of his life on earth with the Sadducees. Remember, he's in the temple teaching in the days right before he's crucified. And he's being challenged by Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, all of them trying to find something to pick apart his story and to expose him as a fraud. And there's that one moment, I'm sure most of you remember, when the Sadducees come to Jesus and they try to trick him with a fictitious account or a, an example in which a woman has had seven husbands because every husband just keeps dying. At the end of it all, she's ended up with seven husbands because she's been widowed six times. 
And then they say, when the resurrection happens, which one of those seven guys is going to be her husband in heaven? Now, the point of the trick, the point of the story was the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe that human beings received new bodies after death. Now, they believed that you would go to heaven. They believed your spirit lived on eternally. But they rejected the notion that you ever needed a second body. So they bring this idea to Jesus and they try to trick him by showing the ridiculousness from their point of view, the ridiculousness of resurrection. Because if resurrection is true, well, you'll have these conundrums. You'll have these circumstances like the one they contrived in which God now has this problem that he supposedly won't be able to fix because you have seven husbands in the first life. Which one follows you into the second? Well, part of the mistake they made was in assuming that you're married in heaven. We all now know, as he corrected them, that we're not married in heaven. We are married to Christ. We don't need another spouse. I don't want to hear any amens or hallelujahs at this point. Especially on the heels of Valentine's Day, that would be very inappropriate. But he moves past answering their question to get to something far more important, to the question of resurrection. Remember, this whole scene happened because Sadducees rejected the notion of resurrection, which is a false thinking on their part. So look what Jesus says to prove the reality of resurrection. He says in Luke twenty thirty seven, he says, but that the dead are raised. Well, even Moses showed that in the passage about the burning bush. When he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Now, what Jesus points out is that as the Lord described himself to Moses at the burning bush, the Lord chose this interesting phrase. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, at the time that he said those words to Moses, all three of those men were dead. Now, at first you might be thinking, well, The mere fact that he's still referring to himself as a God of these men must mean that these guys are going to come back to life. Well, that's true, but that's not really what the point is. The point is this. In Israel, anytime you use the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that phrase is a loaded phrase. It has a certain meaning all its own. To a Jew, it means the Abrahamic covenant. Because those three men were the three men that God personally revealed the covenant to and made them a part of it. Let me use an analogy. If I said four score and seven years ago, what is conjured up in your mind? Gettysburg Address. If I say we the people, what is conjured up in your mind? Right. The Constitution. When you say the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to a Jew, they're thinking the Abrahamic covenant. So what Jesus just said was. Think about the fact that your God calls himself the God of the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant that promises wonderful things to three men who never got them. Abraham never got them. Isaac never got them. Jacob never received what God promised in that covenant. So we must conclude either that God is not a trustworthy God. He goes back on his promises. He can't keep his word. Or we conclude that there must be the truth of resurrection, for that is the only way God can be found faithful in light of the fact that these three men have gone to the grave. The only way God is faithful to the Abrahamic covenant is if all three are resurrected so that in a future day they get what they were promised. So even Jesus uses this concept to demonstrate to the Sadducees the reality of resurrection. So consider the faithfulness of these examples. Men in the case of Abraham and women in the case of Sarah who forfeited their entire life of ease. They turned in all the goodness the earth offered and the ease of life they had in Mesopotamia. They left their family They went to a place that was foreign and, for the most part, unaccommodating, hostile. They lived as nomads. 
They had some wealth. God blessed them. Yes. But at the same time, they suffered hardship in the midst of all of that. And why did they do all that? Because they wanted to demonstrate their confidence in heavenly rewards, in God's promise. They knew they wouldn't see a return on that investment in their lifetime. They knew that even after all of that life of sacrifice, there was no payback until after death and resurrection. They never at any point stopped and said when they turned into their 80s or their 90s or their 100s, and they say, was it really worth it, honey? Maybe we just trade in a little bit of that faithfulness and get a little return here and now. Wouldn't that be nice? No. The writer says they knew that the promises wouldn't be fulfilled for a time. They saw them from a distance and they were content. That's the example the writer holds out to us. He picked this so that we would learn from it. So then the question is, can we live like this? Sacrificing a lifetime of earthly rewards, if need be, to demonstrate our trust in God's promises? You kind of hope he doesn't ask us to do that, don't you? Well, here's the problem. Hebrews 11 does ask us to do that. That is the request. And friends, you do see this around you every day. There are families that sacrifice a life of Saturday soccer games and country clubs and vacation homes so that they can go live as missionaries on the other side of the earth. And we know some of them here in this church. There are people who who forsake marriage altogether, choosing to live a life of singleness or after a marriage is dissolved, choosing to remain faithful to that marriage into the rest of their life. Without companionship. Why? Because it's better to serve Christ in faithfulness, expecting reward in heaven, than to try to gain it for yourself here and now. There are believers who are slandered and persecuted and even martyred around the world simply because they stand on their faith and on the promises of God. All of these people could be said to be welcoming the promises of God from a distance. And yet, the world wants you to think that you better get it while you can now. And God wants you to be happy after all, so he wants you to get whatever you want. I mean, those are the lies that intrude on this biblical principle and compete with it. Remember, the definition of faith we've already learned is always trusting in something unseen and then living with a confidence that that promise will come to pass in the future. See, it's never just what you think. It's also how you live according to that definition. And now you understand why the waiting extends beyond our lifetime because this isn't just trusting God to fulfill his promise in a few days or a few weeks or even a few years. It's letting our entire earthly life become a testimony to things that will remain unseen until all is said and done, as the song said this morning. Such was the faith of these patriarchs. Now, you can also see, I hope more clearly, the heresy of those who would step into the church in some places and begin to teach us that God wants to give us blessing here and now. You know, the book, Your Best Life Now, is a poster For false teaching, just in its title, there is no such thing as your best life now. And if you make that your goal, you are trading things in eternity for things that will burn up. There's just no other way around it. The Bible declares that true faith looks forward to something after the resurrection. In fact, the more you look at the examples that are in this chapter, the more you're going to come to the recognition that there is a certain mindfulness of the resurrection that is built into the life of every one of these saints. I mean, look at where he goes next in talking further about the patriarchs. Look at where resurrection plays a role. Your, your mindfulness of it, your recognition that it's true and your dependence on it for reward. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises 
was offering up his only begotten son, that it was he who was written, or I'm sorry, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, just to prepare you, I'm not going to cover the examples of Isaac and Jacob today in verses 20 and 21. We'll cover that next week. But when we come back to it, the things that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau about concerning things to come were things that come after the resurrection. And the things that Jacob said concerning each of his sons and the tribes of Israel, those are truths that come true after the resurrection. All of these men were looking to things that followed the death of the body. As I said, we'll come back to the last two. But looking at Abraham again. The writer mentions here what I think is probably, I think you'd agree, is Abraham's single greatest moment of faith and action. You know the scene, right? The one that he's talking about here. This is the moment where God had told him, take your only son and take him to the top of a mountain and kill him. Sacrifice him for me. And we're told that Abraham made this offering by faith. But what the writer is referring to here is a very specific aspect of his faith. The writer says Abraham had been told by God, That you're going to have many descendants as part of this promise, as part of this covenant. But he also told Abraham that those descendants would come a very specific way. It would come through this one son, Isaac, not another son, this son. That's part of the promise. How can God tell Abraham to kill the very son through whom all of the promises he said would come will come? It would seem to me that that Abraham would have looked at that and said, I can't do that. I can't get what you're promising me if I do the very thing you're telling me to do. How can Isaac be the one through whom he'll receive all the promises if he's dead? The writer says the answer is resurrection. Once again, the answer is resurrection. You remember, we've already established that Abraham and Sarah lived a life as nomads because they knew they weren't going to receive their blessings until after they died and were resurrected. Right. So clearly, even at this moment in Genesis 22, where he's getting ready to kill his own son, even then, that thought is in his head. He's living a life as a a man expecting to die and expecting to be resurrected into a new body and expecting to see the kingdom at that point. He's already thinking like that. So then, when God tells him, you're going to have to kill this son to please me, the one on whom all these promises rest, Abraham saw nothing contradictory in doing that. He saw no barrier to being obedient. And I'm not diminishing, by the way, how... How significant his actions were in terms of faith. I, I can't imagine doing what he did, right? That's, that's why it's such an impressive moment. But I don't want you to get in your minds that he was just doing this in blind faith. Remember, we said true faith is rooted in something you know to be true. It's not happenstance. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like I have faith, I'll win the lottery. No, that's just blind hope without math. The... To say that I'm going to kill my only begotten son on whom the promises rest only makes sense if you have a rational understanding for why that can still be a good action in light of what God has said. And the answer is resurrection. He knew God will raise people from the dead because his own promises depended on that. And so, because of his confidence in resurrection, Abraham would willingly take the life of his son because he trusted in the Lord's ability to raise someone from the dead, the writer says. Remember, as he walked up the mountain and he had those two servants with him, he said to the servants, leave us. We're going to come up and return to you. Well, I don't think he was saying that is just a platitude like bye. See you later. I think what he meant was literally, 
I don't expect what we're about to do to end in my son's demise. He may die, but he's going to be alive before I come back down. Because that's the only way God gets what he said he's going to do. Friends, that's the level of trust. That's a level of faith that makes Abraham the father of faith in Scripture. That's why he's given that title. And we know, of course, that the Lord never expected him to kill Isaac. We get that. But what God did through this moment was to orchestrate an event that forms a test of Abraham's faith. But in the process, it creates a powerful example of Christ. That's what he means here when he says he received his son back as a type. Abraham's test was this, whether he truly lived with an understanding of God's power to keep his promise, even past the point of death. That was the test. We know he demonstrated his faith in resurrection by how he lived. Yes. But friends, you also know in the record of Genesis, there were these moments in Abraham's life that were not necessarily high points for him. Right. Even as he lived as a nomad, he was also prone to doing things like wandering down to Egypt every time things got tough. Telling his wife to lie and say that he was his sister. Took Hagar as a concubine, made his own way for a child. These moments in his life could, for someone, be used as argument that Abraham eh, wasn't that strong in his faith. He wasn't all that he's made to be. Now, I'm not making that argument, but I'm saying someone might try to make that argument from those experiences, couldn't they? That's why you have Genesis 22. Everything I just described about him, all of those foibles... All of those things that remind us that he was a real guy, sinful, like the rest of us. Those all happened between chapter 15 and chapter 22. Chapter 15 is when you see him receive the covenant in its fullness through that ceremony. And then for the next six, seven chapters, it's not a great testimony. You know, all in all, it's just one mistake after another. You get to chapter 22 and now you're starting to wonder, what is this guy's faith really about? And so God says, take your son and kill him. Let's see. He constructs a test that removes any possibility of doubt. Once Abraham raised that knife over his son, it became clear who he trusted. As the writer says, he trusted the Lord to raise his son from the dead. And because of his belief in God's power to resurrect, he had no reason to hold his son back. And so he says he received him back as a type. Now, what the writer means is that that Abraham took Isaac to the mountain with that expectation that he was going to kill him. I mean, that was Abraham's mindset. He expected that to happen. And Isaac, by the way, who was a fully grown man at this time, somewhere in his 30s, could have resisted his father. But no, there's the only way that Isaac gets on that pile of wood is if he puts himself on that pile of wood. And he did. All the while, Abraham expected to leave that mountain with his son because he expected him to be resurrected. And in the end, he didn't die. So it could be said that Abraham received his son back. He took him up there thinking he would die, and he came down with him alive, and it was as if he got him back. But in the course of that reprieve from the Lord, a type was created, or that's a fancy word for a picture, an example of something. The Bible says that when you saw Isaac taken to the mountain to die, willingly putting himself on the wood like a cross, and then coming back down the mountain alive... We find a type of Messiah, a picture of Christ. The Bible says that it first was the father's desire to put his son to death. Isaiah 53:10 says the Lord was pleased to crush Christ, crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's one verse that says everything about the type. Listen, the Lord, the father was pleased to crush or to put him to grief. Abraham was pleased to kill his son because the Lord had asked him to do it. 
And then the next part of the verse, it says, if he, if Christ would render himself as a guilt offering. And it was Isaac who willingly laid himself on the wood. And if they would do those things, what would the result be? He, Christ, will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. In other words, though he dies on the wood, he will live forever. Resurrection. The whole story of the gospel in one verse. And all of it reflected in the story of Isaac and Abraham. Abraham's journey up the mountain to sacrifice his son was like God sending his son up to Calvary to die. And that death and resurrection is pictured here in what comes. Friends, that's the power of faith lived out. Consider for a moment that when you live according to what you believe, according to the trust you have in God's promises, you inevitably produce a testimony. When Abraham lived according to his faith, he produced a beautiful picture of the actual crucifixion of Christ. And I assure you that in the moment he carried this out, it was not on his mind to create such a picture. He didn't say to himself, well, I wouldn't normally do this, but I know you're going to use this in a marvelous way to teach everyone about the coming Messiah. So let me please go ahead and do this for you. No, no. He was thinking only about what he could understand, which is you've made promises. I believe you. I believe you can get past death. Death is not a barrier to your faithfulness. I'll do what you tell me to do. If you're going to fulfill that mission, if you're going to let the Lord use your life as a testimony to what you believe, then you have to let your faith inform your choices and decisions. Imagine what it would happen if Abraham had refused to sacrifice Isaac. At the very least, he would have forfeited the opportunity to testify. And who knows what else he would have been putting at risk in eternity. That's why you're called to live by faith. You have a mission. We have a mission. That mission, as long as we're alive, is to represent the living God to a lost and dying world. And I know we do that as we can through the way we speak about who we believe in and what he has promised. It's it's often said, preach the gospel everywhere you go, but only use words when necessary. That's the idea here. There's no better way to preach the gospel than how you live. And when I say how you live, it's not merely about being a nice person The simple things of life that make other people happy with you and and make you look upstanding and and righteous. That's fine. That's necessary. But that's not the extent of it. Abraham was probably a pretty decent guy where he lived, but that didn't mean he had to be a nomad. He needed to be a nomad, though, to communicate that I know where my inheritance is. He didn't have to sacrifice his son, except those were the demands that God put on his life. And obedience at that moment became about doing what you were told in that moment. Not about what you did yesterday. When I say live by faith, I mean living in the way defined in this chapter. Live with the expectation that the Lord is, as we heard in 11.6, that is knowing he is alive, knowing he is active. Tell people he's active in your life. When people ask you why you do things, you tell them because the Lord is giving me this feeling or giving me this indication or because I know in his word it says this. Your answers are not simply about math and, and culture and rationale. It's about what the Lord is saying. That's living like he is. And then secondly, live with an expectation that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Don't set your focus on the world and on its rewards. Let your faith set your priorities. Set aside the rewards the world offers if need be so that you can do more to please him for what will lie in the future. Invest in the kingdom instead. Sometimes you can do both, but not often. Most of the time, We're supposed to live with an expectation that the Lord's promises await our resurrection. So we don't get caught up trying to gain them for ourselves now. It's one of my most common points of counsel to anyone when they're struggling with the way the world pulls us off track. 
It's about, do you reward yourself with what the world makes available now, or do you let God reward you in the resurrection? The trick with that decision, or the hardest thing about that decision, is that you will always be looking at the promises of God from a distance until after all of this is said and done. So it's a little bit like Monty Hall, let's make a deal. If you're old enough to know what I'm talking about, don't admit it. You're being asked to turn down something that you can see. What the world offers is all around you. You know exactly what that looks like. And in turn, you're being asked to give it up for something that's behind door number one. And though you have no idea what it is, what you do know is the character and the faithfulness of the one who's put it there, who saved it for you, who has reserved it for you as an inheritance. So although you can't see what it is, you know who delivered it. And knowing him by his word, by his promises, is sufficient. That's what we set our eyes on, eyes for eternity. And God, notice what he said at the end there, and God was not ashamed to be called their God. Let's not let God be ashamed that he calls himself our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, far from shaming you, Father, I pray that we would always seek to please you. I pray over this fellowship and for the hearts of those who hear this message, Lord, I pray that your word being powerful and all sufficient would be your instrument in their lives to convict and to challenge, to direct and guide, to encourage and to empower so that we would take what we've learned and put it to work in our lives. That on a daily basis, not just on a Sunday afternoon while the memory of the teaching is still fresh, but on every day, Father, you would have us consider soberly the decisions we make in our lives, the priorities we set, not just in the small things, Father, but even in the big things, where we live, how we live, our budget, our time, our passions. Father, we know from your word that you have prepared things for those who please you that will exceed anything we can obtain for ourselves in the world that we live in. And forgive us, Father, for so often making such a poor trade. But I do ask, Father, that with the time remaining, We may recover all and more of what you have prepared for us by how we might live from this point forward. Give us courage. Give us confidence. Give us the faith necessary to do the right things. And lead us back into your word on a regular basis so that when we wane in our confidence and when the enemy begins to deceive us, we find reason to stand firm. And bring us back as this study continues in the weeks to come, Father, and let us know all that you have prepared in your word for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.